0: So I think the biggest gift you can do is spell things out for your children and for your family members and have everything in place so that, you know, while they're going through this grieving period, that they're not having to jump through hoops with the county you live in as far as, you know, where your accounts are going or, you know, what you wanted.
1: Puzzles go by a lot of names. Jigsaws, crosswords, sudokus, brain teasers, brain bashers, brain knitters, knotters, and bocklers. You get the idea. On this show, we deal with financial puzzles. Your host is Money & Clarity Certified Financial Planner, Nikki Early. It's time for the show. Let's put the pieces together. It's another edition of the Solving the Financial Puzzle podcast. Walter Storholt here alongside Nikki Early, certified financial planner with Money and & Clarity and serving you in the Cincinnati and surrounding communities and areas. You can find the, uh, the team online at moneyandclarity.com. Nikki, great to be with you again uh, this week. And boy, spring has sprung. Welcome to the, the new season. How, how's uh, things going for you so far this year?
0: Well, great, and I think we just talked off air a little bit about both getting our first shots, so we're going to be, I guess, not susceptible to COVID, so that'll be a good thing. I'm kind of liking
1: my extra finger, to be honest with
0: you. (laughs) Unintended consequence, but it kind of
1: feels like a superpower in a way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then what, oh, well, and here in Cincinnati, it's going to be beautiful this week. I think high of 70, maybe even 80 on Wednesday, so yeah, feels good.
1: Oh, fantastic. Uh, Time to. uh, Where is the first uh, restaurant that you're going to enjoy going to eat at and, you know, not really having the COVID in the back of your mind trying to do so?
0: You know, there's a place just down the street. I call it the Chicken Place, but it's the Silver Spring House. And (laughs) I mean, the Chicken Place isn't a bad (laughs) restaurant name, just the Chicken Place. Straightforward. (laughs) Well, Spring House, I think, has to do with the name, but they are known for their chicken. So, and it's kind of outdoorsy. Their windows open up, and then they've had a tent up. I drive by it often, but that will be like, that was my go to um, before all this started. So I'm looking forward to going back there.
1: Very nice. I knew you'd have one in the back of your mind already. So very, very good. Well, this last year, Nikki, we really have all sort of uh, had this feeling of flirting with disaster. Uh, A little bit of concern, obviously, about COVID and the challenges that It has presented to all of us over this past year, and sometimes uh, I guess there's a big difference between that and our topic of discussion for today's show. We knew what we were dealing with with COVID. We knew that we were uh, you know, getting into trouble or had some issues facing us as a country and as individuals trying to navigate that whole new world. On today's show, we want to talk about, in a similar vein, areas where we might be flirting with disaster in our financial plans, But the slight difference here is that many people don't even know it. We don't even know we're flirting with disaster. And so we're going to talk about some of the different areas where I'm sure you see this play out on a daily or at least weekly basis, probably, in the office. Uh, Let's start off with an easy example for you. Out-of-date legal documents. Would you say that that is uh, definitely an area where people are often flirting with disaster and and don't even realize it?
0: Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Nobody wants to contemplate their death, right? (laughs) So And not only do we not see, or not only do we see out of date, but we also meet with people who have a decent amount of wealth that have nothing in place. So I do like to talk about what it costs because nobody likes to pay a lawyer, right? I mean, it's no fun to write a check for $3,000 to a lawyer to do you know, documents for you. But when you think about it as a percentage of your net worth it's really a very small percentage. And isn't it worth it to spend the money to make sure that if you pass away or when you pass away, because we all will, that you know, whatever you have left goes to who you want in the proper manner. So that's one thing. The other thing to your point is having out of date documents. So for instance, and it was not a great situation, but it, it certainly helped my husband and I plan. Unfortunately, his really good friend died at age 27. And his wife was pregnant with an eight month, I mean, she was eight months pregnant. So um, they had nothing in place like will and estate wise, and they didn't have life insurance in place. And so early on, you know, Brad and I realized how important that we're not invincible, that, you know, it, it, things happen. So, but my point being is that when my son was born and when we named who we wanted to be his legal guardians that isn't necessarily where we would want him to go today. And it's kind of a moot po- uh, a moot topic, I should say, for him because he's 18 years old, so he is of legal age, but I still have a 14-year-old daughter. So again, the person that we necessarily thought 18 years ago that we'd want taking care of our children or being their guardians isn't necessarily the person that we that we wanted today. So it's very important to keep that type of thing up to date. I will say that a really good estate plan is not only talking about a will, but there's also power of attorneys in play. So medical and financial power of attorneys and healthcare directives. And those don't, the, you know, the medical and the financial power of attorney doesn't have to necessarily be the same person. You can choose different people for that. But the thing that I go back to is that healthcare directive. I just don't want anyone having to guess my wishes. And if you lay it out there for them, then they're not having to feel guilt about making decisions. And again, going back to personal things, my father had to make the decision to turn off life support for his dad. And at that point, they had never had any discussions around what he wanted or what his wishes were. And I know he felt a lot of guilt over the years for that, um, wondering, you know, did he make the right decision? And then fast forward, unfortunately, my father just died in October and we knew his wishes. So when we had to make that decision and turn off life support, um, it was a lot easier and a less guilty feeling, I would say, than he had with his dad. So I think the biggest gift you can do is spell things out for your children and your for your family members and have everything in place so that, you know, while they're going through this grieving period, that they're not having to jump through hoops with the county you live in as far as, you know, where your accounts are going or, you know, what you wanted. So it's a, it's a huge gift. It's not fun, but it's something you should do for your family.
1: Yeah. That's such an important thing to discuss because uh, there's a lot of things you want to have right there. And if one of those is off track, it can cause a lot of problems. Um, you know, It can be a cascading of events if one of those documents is out of place or not up to um, you know, the way that it should be formulated or done properly. And speaking of documents that aren't filled out properly or might be out of date, one area we should really highlight out of all of these different moving parts is that little section about uh, beneficiary designations on a few various forms, especially the financial ones, And if those are incorrect, uh, the law has been pretty clear on this, Nikki, um, and and that's led to a lot of heartache for a lot of people.
0: Oh, for sure. So situations change. And just again, for instance, I know I'm Bringing my family back into this, but my son Cameron, who had, um, he's 18 years old. He has a Roth IRA and we just decided to put his younger sister, Georgie, as a beneficiary. If something happened to him, you know, Brad and I don't need what few dollars are in there. So we would rather have it go to her. Now fast forward. He's 18. I hope he's not getting married anytime soon or having children, but you know, that likely will happen at some point. So if he doesn't remember, I don't remind him at some point to change it from Georgie to his wife or children, you know, then she would be entitled to that money if he would die, even though that's probably not what he wanted. And just to your point, wills do not trump beneficiary designations. So if Georgie's listed as the beneficiary on that IRA and his will says, give everything to my wife and kids, it doesn't matter. She gets the money. Mm. Now, the other thing, again, just having gone through this with my father, is he had me listed as sole beneficiary on a handful of accounts. Now, of course, I split that money three ways between my sisters. I have two sisters and I, you know, and documented everything and gave them copies of checks. But... I could have not even told them about the money and I could have kept it for myself. Um, So that comes into play. You want to make sure that, you know, if you have three children that you want to leave money to, that they're all three listed or you really trust the person you're listing to divide it up equally. Now, I've been, I think a lot of our listeners are clients and so they know this, but uh, my past, I was in retail banking a lot uh, for a big majority of my career. And um, I can't tell you how many times that I saw situations where people did come in where they had like an (laughs) ex-wife or an ex-husband listed as a beneficiary on an account and their new wife and new husband were not very happy and that wasn't a great conversation to have. So it's really easy, especially if you've been working in a job for a long time or you've had accounts for a long time to kind of forget like, oh, yes, I need to update that.
1: It's amazing how things when we are dealing with our life savings... Can get overlooked in such a way, but it happens. It's
0: it does, it does.
1: It's a realistic consequence, unfortunately. So we've got to make sure we're staying on top of these kinds of things. All right, those were the two really big ones I wanted to make sure we talked about, at least from a document standpoint. Shifting gears a little bit, I've heard you and Dan talk about before, Nikki, the ticking tax time bomb, and I feel like we should throw that into this equation because it's appropriately named for a Topic about flirting with disaster to right. be discussing, you know, tax time bombs here. So, what is the tax time bomb for those who might be new to the show and new to you and, and Dan and, and your kind of teachings? And why is that an area that gets flirted with disaster so often? And even more importantly, if we've got a bomb, we should, seems like we should know about this. So, why does it fall under the category diffuse of diffuse it, right? Of, <laughs> of not even knowing about it, right? Like, yeah, we got to know about it before we can diffuse it.
0: Well, so the thing is, we've been taught. Our whole lives um, virtually that to put our money in tax-deferred type accounts, not pay the tax now, but know that when we retire, that we'll be in a lower tax bracket and we should pay the tax then. But that might not be the case. And so just to kind of back that up, to give some perspective, historically, believe it or not, <laughs> because it doesn't feel like it, we are in a low tax environment. Our highest marginal tax rate is 37%. Now, if we go back to the 1940s, and we like to use this example a lot, uh, Ronald Reagan happened to be making movies back then. And if he made more than $300,000 a year, his marginal, highest marginal tax bracket was 94%. So that meant 94 cents of every dollar he made went to the federal government in taxes. And that's not even counting California state taxes. So he literally, if he made more than three hundred thousand dollars, was working for nothing. So back then, he made about, on average, a hundred thousand dollars a movie. So guess how many movies Walter he made in any <laughs> given year? <laughs> three, three, right? Yeah, you're not gonna because that. Why, why? Why would you? Why would you? So. Then you fast forward to the 1970s and the highest marginal tax bracket at that point was 70%. So I'm not implying that all of us in retirement are going to be in the highest marginal tax bracket, but I just want to give some perspective that we are low. But then I will talk to you about the shift that's going on. So we all hear about it all the time. We have this large um, group of baby boomers that are Not in the workforce anymore. They're, they're moving out. So they're no longer paying into things like social security and Medicare, but yet becoming recipients of those. And again, to give a little perspective, back when social security, for instance, was first enacted uh, by FDR in the 30s, there were about 37 people paying in for every one recipient. If we fast forward to today, it's like three to one. So we've got these programs that are underfunded and are in trouble. So we think about that tax-wise. Then you start thinking about our national debt, the new stimulus packages, and I can't help but think taxes will go up. So when we know that we've put all this money into all this tax-deferred accounts, what does that mean for us when we actually have to start pulling it out? It means you get to keep less. And then when you, the law changed recently, it was 70 and a half, but now it's age 72. The government requires you to take your RMDs or your required minimum distributions for the, from those accounts, whether or not you need them or not. So essentially the government's saying you're going to have to pay us taxes at some point before you die. So yeah, there's just a lot going on there. And if a majority of your money is in tax-deferred accounts, I would be concerned. We certainly would love to talk to you about that. If you have the option to do Roth IRAs, if your 401k or 403b offers uh, a Roth option within it, I'd certainly take advantage of it. And if you're young enough to start maybe doing some Roth conversions and paying the tax now when we are in a lower tax environment, I certainly would encourage that as well.
1: The tax time bomb. I know it's one of the central things that you and Dan talk about and diffusing it, even more important than talking about it. And uh, a couple of good suggestions for getting along that road a little bit. All right. A couple of good examples so far of where people are flirting with disaster and maybe don't even know it. We also see this when it comes to the long-term care expenses that people need to plan for. And the way that they're flirting with disaster is they don't have a plan for it. So, Right. <laughs> but th- th-
0: <laughs> this one doesn't
1: really apply to this conversation because I think we all know this, right? Like we know if we don't have a plan for this and that it is an issue. This one, at least it's flirting with disaster, but we kind of know this one a little bit.
0: But again, nobody likes to talk about death or getting ill, right? right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a hard topic. So statistically, it's not anymore if you're going to need it, it's when you're going to need it. Uh, If you're a 65-year-old couple, um, there's an 80% chance that one of you will need this type of care in your lifetime. So it's something that has to be addressed to your point. Now, plans can be different. We joke about Rose Kennedy and that she likely wasn't worried about paying for long-term care expenses because she had enough wealth. So that could be your plan. If you've accumulated enough wealth and you feel comfortable that you're going to be able to cover those expenses, that's a plan. Your plan could be to spend down all your assets and go on Medicaid. And that's a plan too. The problem with that plan is if you have a spouse that's healthy and they're writing the checks... (laughs) And they're watching their net worth diminish because essentially, if you do have a spouse that goes on Medicaid, you can have just above $130,000 worth of assets, liquid assets. So I'm not saying they're taking your home away or your cars necessarily, but they are going to make you spend down all of your IRAs, 401ks, savings accounts till you're just at a little above $130,000. So, I mean, that can be a plan. Don't get me wrong, but again, I feel sorry for the well spouse that is having to watch that all happen. Another plan could be to buy a policy. Um, and I get, I run scenarios for people all the time. They're expensive. The premiums on those are not cheap, but there are certain things you can do to help with that. So one of the things is that, and again, not fun to talk about, the average stay in a long-term care health facility or nursing home is about three years. And Walter, can you guess why that is? <laughs> mm,
1: yes, uh, because that's how long people lived or <laughs> live
0: <that. laughs> or they either go home and get better right away or they die. Right. And you know, it's unfortunate, but if someone's trying, if an insurance agent is trying to sell you a policy that gives you 10 years of coverage, statistically, you're not going to need that much. And it's going to be way more expensive. So that's one thing to think about if you're shopping. The other thing to think about is that. If you employ like a 90-day waiting period, then again, the insurance company thinks, well, that person is either probably going to die early or they're going to go home and everything's going to be fine. So you can reduce your premium that way. One thing I wouldn't skimp on though would be the inflation protection because if I'm buying a long-term care policy at age 65 or 70, if I don't need it until 80, you know, what I'm purchasing if I'm only purchasing like $300 a day in coverage is not going to be worth $300 a day 10 years from now. So, you know, the ins and outs of purchasing those policies is don't pay too much when you don't have to, but also know the things that are important when you're purchasing one.
1: I would have uh, actually not known the answer to that question about the average stay. So I Mm -hmm. could see that definitely being an area where people who don't have that context, who don't have that knowledge, could easily be persuaded to buy into something that was a 10-year policy or something like that, not knowing that they're way overpaying or way overinsuring in a situation like that.
0: Yeah, and we also do like to... Laugh at the last plan. Some people say, "Oh, my daughter's going to take care of me. She's a nurse." Sure, <laughs> well, sure. your daughter lives in California. How's that going to work? And does her husband know <laughs> like oh, that that's your plan? <laughs> right. You know. So, but the the important part again, to to your point early on, is that you have to have some plan.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's not again fun to talk about, but one of those things in life that we need to talk about. All right, last but not least, Nikki, one more example where people are flirting with disaster and may not even know it is for those abiding by the 60-40 portfolio, kind of viewed as a classic portfolio mix for folks. Can you tell us what that is and why would something that seems so classic be flirting with disaster?
0: Well, so the 60-40 is basically you putting 60% of your money in large cap stocks, which are large companies in the US, and then 40% in bonds. But You should never, ever have a large percentage of your net worth in one particular stock or asset class. So by putting 60% of your net worth in large cap, you're really putting yourself out there as far as volatility of the markets. Now, when we are initially working with clients, we do see and find that a lot of their money is essentially in large US stocks. And I get it, that's what they know. They know P&G, they know Amazon. And for 2020, that was great, right? Because we sold a lot of toilet paper to people and a lot of groceries and we had a lot of Amazon trucks out there. So it worked out well. But if you go back in history and you look at like the last 30 years, large US stocks have only won or been the best performing asset class about three or four times. So it's not a great strategy. Diversified portfolios, like the ones we have our clients in, they are going to have small stocks, value stocks, international stocks, most of our portfolios have at least 20 different asset classes and 80 different countries. And you know, just thinking about that conceptually, you might think, well, that's, you know, risky, but it's not because over time different asset classes are performing differently. There's always going to be winners and losers, and if you're spread out, then you're essentially diversifying yourself and I know that's a word that we use and investment planning a lot, but you're essentially diversifying yourself to make up for the years where certain asset classes aren't doing well. And those type of portfolios are going to be much less volatile than say, just putting 60% of your money into large US and 40% into bonds. It just, I mean, any study, any data that you can find will, will tell you that over and over.
1: I think it's a great point and uh, worth discussing, worth thinking about one example of something that was viewed as a classic portfolio or a classic strategy of old that doesn't necessarily translate to today's retirement planning landscape. And I know we've done shows and had lots of conversations about that kind of thing in the past as well, but just another kind of shining example of that. So there you have it. Are you flirting with disaster in your own financial plan and in your own retirement life? Um, Is the future going to be full of some of that uncertainty that we talked about on today's show? If that's the case, don't hesitate to reach out to Nikki and Dan and the team at Money & Clarity. You can do that by calling 513-563-PLAN and talk about your particular situation. Go over any of these kinds of issues that may impact you, or maybe it's something that we didn't discuss on today's show that's been on your mind. Talk those things out with Nikki and Dan. See if they're able to help. 513-563-PLAN or just go straight online to moneyandclarity.com, and we'll put contact information in the description of today's show so it's easy for you to find as well. Nikki, thank you for all the help on today's show. Good luck as you get vaccine at number two here in a couple of days. And um, I know you're jealous of my extra finger. So here's (laughs) my extra finger is crossed for you that you'll get some superhuman powers too.
0: I am jealous, Walter. I'll look forward to talking with you next time.
1: Sounds great. Uh, In all seriousness, thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll talk to everybody next time right back here on Solving the Financial Puzzle. Information provided on today's show is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with an investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action. Nikki Early is an investment advisor representative of Capril Wealth Coaching, LLC, a registered investment advisor. To obtain a copy of Form ADV and a privacy policy statement, call 800-353-7920. 23